Listen, open up your Bibles to the book of Philippians. Brand new year, brand new book of the Bible that we're starting in this morning. We're just going to get into it, and then we'll launch into it more fully uh, next week. Jim Burns is a youth writer um, who spent his career uh, just helping families um, in youth ministry. And he, and he authored a lot of books. When I was a youth pastor, I read some of his books. They're really helpful to me. And uh, he was about to interview one of his heroes on his podcast. Uh, Johnny Erickson Tata was scheduled to come on. And uh, here's what he reports. He said when Johnny and, um, and her husband, Ken, walked into the studio, he said she was so radiant, like she just exuded radiance, that he knew he had to take his cards and uh, all of his questions that he had carefully sort of put together, and he decided to set all of them aside and ask her why and how she was so radiant. Uh, If you know anything about Johnny Erickson Tata, I actually misspoke. She did not walk into the studio. She was wheeled into the studio because she is a quadriplegic. Uh, She had a tragic accident when she was a teenager that left her paralyzed in a wheelchair. And so he asked her the question, Johnny, how are you so joyful after all these years? That happened when you were 17. I think she was in her 60s when he interviewed her. And her response was this. She said that she has disciplined herself through the years to obey this command, to give thanks in all circumstances. And she said, year after year after year, of just giving thanks in all circumstances. And then she used this term. She said, I have reflexive gratitude. So she's like, I almost can't even help myself. It just comes out of me that I have so much to be thankful for. Every other Sunday night, I would visit someone also in a wheelchair. This individual was also paralyzed by a tragic accident in his teenage years. He wasn't so thankful. He didn't radiate joy. In fact, he was actually kind of hard to live with at times. And I should know because he came to live with our family the last several years before he passed away. The man was my grandpa. We called him Gramps. And Gramps was confined to a wheelchair as well. And when we'd go visit Gramps, there was tons of sarcasm and a lot of cynicism that came out. In fact, as I look back on how my dad led our family and led family devotions and prayer times and all these different things, I realized how much sort of cutting comments came from his father-in-law who he had taken in to, to live with us. So I want you to think about two different people both starting with tragic teenage accidents that left them confined to a wheelchair, one who has impacted thousands upon thousands. I would count Johnny Erickson Tata as one of my heroes as well. If you haven't read anything by her, go read something by her. Go watch a YouTube video of her speaking. And the other who passed away, and to my knowledge, never submitted his life to Jesus Christ, but lived in a state of cynicism and sarcasm much of the time. And I think if we see those two situations, we think this, if we were ever tested in such a way that we were paralyzed and confined to a wheelchair, we would 100% want to live our life like Johnny. 
We would want to just exude joy and radiate uh, gratitude uh, even just as we enter a room. You may not have a tragic accident, but let me tell you, life will test you. Some of you have started a new reading plan. I'm big on reading plans because it's like a personal trainer for me. It just tells me, here, read this today. I'm like, sweet. So I started a new reading plan. I'm reading in two places right now, Genesis and Job. Let me tell you two passages I've already come across in this new year that tell about the testing of life. One says this. In Genesis chapter 6, it says this, that every thought of the human heart was only evil all the time. That's a pretty bleak picture. This is before the flood. That every thought or intention of the human heart was only evil all the time. That's pretty bleak. Fast forward to uh, Job 5. In Job 5 it says this, that man was born to trouble as sparks fly upward. Sparks fly upward. We call them fire fishies around our household. When you're at a campfire, you see little fire fishies just shooting up. They just go shooting up. And when you see those, remember, man was born to trouble as sparks fly upward. What, is, what does that mean? What do both of those passages mean? It means life is hard. It's going to test you. The year 2024 is no different than what we just read in Genesis and Job. Because of the nature of the fallen world we live in, because of the nature of the human heart, you are going to be tested this year. Life is really, really hard. Here's a trap that people sink into. People sink into searching out little bits of happiness wherever they can find it and then just sort of holding and clinging to it, even as it sort of like trickles through their hand like wet sand, they still try to hold on to it. And by doing that, by ever seeking little bits of happiness that they can sort of eke out of this hard world, they actually miss the deeper joy that we've been singing about already today. They miss the deeper joy that is available to them, and it's just out of sight. I want you to get in your mind a story. Maybe you're a reader, so it's a book or a movie. Maybe you're a movie buff. But what is a story or movie that you think captures joy really well? Uh, most story arcs follow a very similar kind of a pattern, and uh, it often culminates with sort of this aha moment or sort of joy discovered or revealed or whatnot. Take just a second, turn to a neighbor, and see if you can come up with a movie or a book or just a favorite story of yours that, that, that talks about joy, that kind of captures joy in a really good way. So this is an actual question. Turn to your actual neighbor and have an actual quick conversation. Thirty seconds. All right. Anyone want to share a movie or a story or what they came up with that talks about joy? Anyone got one? 
Rob. Okay. All right. Two very different movies, but seen at the same time of year usually. Yeah. What else? Finding Nemo. Okay. Oh, we have a match. Looks like there was another one, maybe. Anyone else? Yeah, Karen. Elf. All right. Yeah. One more. The Sound of Music. Okay. Man, this was not hard to do. Like these are, there are, Our stories are filled with this kind of thing. Uh, we watched a movie over a break, and it's one of my favorites, and it has this lyric in it. It says this. It's everything you ever want. It's everything you ever need, and it's here right in front of you. This is where you want to be. Anyone know what that's from? The Greatest Showman. My family knows. The Greatest Showman, uh, P.T. Barnum, he goes off searching for happiness in fame and notoriety and the excitement of traveling and putting on great shows and getting recognition. And by the end of the movie, it's just so powerful. It's actually a really rich movie that celebrates monogamous male-female marriage and family. He finds deep joy and contentment in what's sitting right in front of him, his marriage and his kids. As a Christian, I grab hold of that idea. I take it one step further, that we, the church, are the bride of Christ, that my marriage to Becky, as great as that is, is a pointer to something even greater, and that the family that I have, as great as our family is, is actually something that's pointing to something even deeper, that we're part of the family of God. So just a, a really powerful uh, movie and fun thing to think about. I want to ask you this morning, what or who or where is it that stirs up in you that greatest, deepest satisfaction, happiness, contentment, joy? Like, where is that? If you stop and think about that, what does that feel like to experience it? To experience it? And then here's part two of the question. What would it be like if you had more of that in your life? What would it be like if you took the month of January and you were to go back at the end of the day and you were to circle every day that you said, I experienced true, deep joy today? And what if at the end of January you looked at that month calendar and you saw more days circled than that were not circled and what if by the end of the calendar year you were to look and you were to just see this increasing sense of joy that you've been walking in and living in and living out of i cannot think of a single person a single family a single church a single neighborhood that isn't desperate for more joy, longing for more joy, wouldn't want it immediately if it was handed to them. Now, we're getting to Philippians right now because this little four-chapter book that we're going to be walking through in the next handful of weeks is all about joy. It is going to talk about a joy that's way deeper than petty happiness, and it's going to teach us and model for us of how to get there. It's so Instructive. I've been really excited to dive in with you. Let's go. Philippians chapter 1, verse 1 says this Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine. 
for you all, making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. All right, hit pause. We're going to pick up the rest of this uh, sort of opening prayer of Thanksgiving next week. But if you're taking notes, um, and I hope that you are, this is one of the ways you grow spiritually, is you jot down things that will be helpful. You jot down questions you have. One of the great things about community groups is you expect to use this material again in the next couple of days. But here's the first thing I want to point out, that this book of the Bible is actually a letter. That the book is actually a letter. And because it's a letter, there are going to be some things that as we try to interpret it, we will not understand fundamentally. Here's why. If I were to write a personal letter to my friends, the Burlsons, over in South Africa, I might write some things that only the Burlsons and I would understand because we experienced them together. So there are personal things talked about in this letter to the church at Philippi that as we try to step in and interpret, we would have to make up what's being talked about because we aren't the actual people there. So this book is actually a letter, and more than just a letter, it's a kind of thank you note. It's almost like a thank you note back to this church. And next week we're going to kind of look at some of the uh, miraculous ways that this church got started. Instead of signing their name at the end of a letter, here's what people used to do, is they would put it right at the beginning. So who is this letter from? It's from, look at your verse, verse one. It's from Paul and Timothy. So rather than that being a prideful thing of like him putting himself out there first, he's, he's doing what's really customary, which is say, this is who it's from. And it's to this church at Philippi. This letter exudes joy. Now, I'm sure as pastors, much like his parents, you're not supposed to have favorites. There's a little discussion going on in my family right now as to which kid is my favorite. Now, the sin of favoritism ruins families. So I don't want to make light of that because some of you have personal pain involved in that. And I'm sure as pastors who has planted churches, you're not supposed to have a favorite church. But if Paul had a favorite church, I think it might be Philippi. Just by the way that he writes this letter to them, by the way he feels about them, by the partnership that he talks about throughout these four chapters, this might be his favorite church. Here's the title for the series that we're going in. Oceans of Joy. Oceans of Joy. I want you to do sort of a thought experiment with me for a moment. As we walk through the book of Philippians, I want you to think of joy like the ocean. Now, if you live anywhere near the church, you are about 35 minutes from one of the absolute marvels of the world. It's called the Pacific Ocean. Let me give you a couple tidbits about the Pacific Ocean. If you were to take all of the water in the Atlantic Ocean, I've never tried this, but I read this online, so it must be true. If you take all the water in the Atlantic Ocean and you were to pour it into the Pacific Ocean, you could pour two of the Atlantic Ocean's waters into the Pacific. That's how incredibly vast it is. The Pacific Ocean, uh, if you were to take all of the land mass on the entire planet, and you were to stitch it together over like one big quilt, like just made it all together and laid it on the Pacific Ocean, 
the Pacific Ocean is still bigger than that. It, there would still be ocean showing. Um, Gria, at least, has done this before, but he just flew to Sydney, Australia. I've made that flight too. That's a lot of ocean, isn't it? I mean, you're just flying for hour after hour after hour, and you probably left from San Francisco, and so you're not over land much, and it's just a huge, giant place. Did you know it has the deepest trench and the world's tallest mountain on the planet? Bigger than Mount Everest. It's just that much of it is underwater. So the Pacific Ocean is an incredible uh, place. Here's the point. The joy that is available to you, Christian, in Christ is more than the water of the Pacific. In fact, look at our title. It's Oceans of Joy. So to try to get our head around it even more, not just standing at the shore of the Pacific and looking out and trying to fathom how big that is, but the oceans of the world. There are oceans of joy at our disposal as Christians in Jesus Christ. So if joy is the ocean, I want us to take this thought experiment and say, okay, that's joy. What's happiness? Think of happiness as the way that we experience the ocean from the shore. If you were to stand at the shore and you were there long enough, you would see the tide come up and you would see the tide go down. How many of you ever stood at the ocean shore and put your feet here and the water came up and down, up and down, up and down? Raise your hand if you've done that. Okay, it's still fun. I do this all the time. What happens to your feet? They get wet, and then what happens? They disappear. Yeah, you just have these little ankles that you're standing on. It's kind of cool. That's because the waves are just kind of coming up and down, up and down, up and down. When we first brought Eli home, Eli had never seen an ocean before, and we brought him to the beach. Part of Carlson training is ocean life and Marianne's ice cream. So we do this with our kids very, very early on. And he screeched and screamed. He was so terrified of the ocean. I was out there with him and trying to dip his feet, and he was going like this. He was like keeping them up. Just terrifying to see all this movement and foam and froth and all that. And when you're little, it's like down here. So it's all coming just right at you. Well, I was patient because I knew this. I didn't want to traumatize the poor kid, but I knew this kid had to love the ocean. A few days ago, we're at Capitola. Eli's in the ocean for as many hours a day as we ever let him. We can't get him out of the ocean. He's the one child of ours who will not wear a wetsuit. So inevitably, tons of people, we're in the middle of January, he's out there surfing for a couple hours. Tons of people always come and talk to him. I always know what they're asking. Hey, right on, man. All these older guys are like, cool, no wetsuit. They're, they're, they're all wearing a wetsuit. Anyway, I can't get Eli out of the ocean now. But it wasn't always that way. I bring up Eli in the ocean because of this. Imagine experiencing the ocean from a toddler point of view. You're two years old, you're three years old. What does it look like from the shore about the ocean? When the tide is up, there's tons of ocean. But when the tide goes away, it looks like what? The ocean disappears, recedes, that there's not much ocean there anymore. Remember, a toddler is really, really short. So they're not seeing much of the ocean out there. Happiness is a little bit like that. It appears for a little while and then not so much. Our happiness is tied to our circumstances. So there is a certain ebb and flow that comes with that. Sometimes the tide is high and there's plenty of, of ocean to go around. Sometimes it disappears or seems to dry up completely. 
Tate was building some little rock balancing things while I was sitting there reading and kind of just hanging out. And, uh, and then to protect his little rock towers, he began to build a wall because the waves were coming up higher and higher. He was going to protect his balanced rocks from the tide. Was Tate successful? Say no. Of course not. Like You can't stop the ocean. There's nothing you can do about the tide coming up. There's nothing you can do about the tide going out. So I want you to differentiate a little bit between joy and happiness this way, that happiness, there's going to be a certain ebb and flow to it, and much of it is just completely out of our control. We don't know what 2024 is going to bring, much like we didn't know what 2023 brought. Many of the things we planned and prepped, and some of you are strategizers and goal setters, and you look back and you go, man, some of the biggest things that went on, they didn't make my list. They didn't make my plan. They didn't make any of that because I didn't know it was coming. It just came. It just sort of showed up. So the joy this letter talks about and teaches us is the ocean beyond the shore of happiness. There's nothing you can do to diminish or dry up the joy that is available to Christians in Christ. It's so deep and so vast, you could take all of your worries, all of your troubles, all of your happiness that you've ever had, lay it over the joy of Christ, and there would still be joy showing. You can't possibly cover it up. Now, this little tagline that we have, if you're taking notes, I want you to write two things down. The little tagline that we'll remember all through Philippians is this, that you can't help yourself, and I mean that in two ways. One is, you can't help yourself. In other words... Joy like this is not from you. It is a gift of God. If you're writing anything down, write joy is a gift of God. So when it says that there's oceans of joy for you to experience and to lean on and to trust and to pursue and to walk in, you realize you can't help yourself. You can't muster up this kind of joy. Anyone know the fruit of the Spirit? Want to call it the fruit of the Spirit? Is love, what? Joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. Right there in the fruit of the Spirit is joy. It's a product of God making his home in us. So you can't help yourself. That means you can't create this kind of joy and you can't keep this kind of joy. It's not up to you. You don't have to build another thing my kids do. I remember doing this too. Like you build a, a sandcastle or something and then you build a little like pool. So when the tide comes up, you've got your own little pool right there. It's almost a picture of people sort of trying to cling or hold on to a little bit of happiness. There it is. But even that, what does that do? That just sort of seeps into the ground at some point. Dries up. So we can't produce this joy. We can't keep this joy. One of our memory verses this uh, last series was from Ephesians 2.8. It says, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Now, some of you theologians out there are like, wait a minute, that's talking about salvation. True. Ephesians 2, 8 through 10. Talking about salvation, but joy works the same way. That joy is not from you, it's a gift of God. In fact, for you to try to muster up joy or work for joy or strive to keep joy would actually diminish the fruit of joy in your life. 
David, who wrote many of the Psalms, was a king. He was called a man after God's own heart. Did you know that King David, who was a poet, warrior, just giant figure in the Bible, blew it big time with God? I mean big time. He really, really, really blew it. I don't know what you did last year, but honestly, probably if you were to scale things in terms of consequences and, and all of that, David was flat out wicked in what he did. And many of you know Psalm 51. If you don't know Psalm 51 as a Christian, I pray you would get to know Psalm 51 really, really well. Psalm 51 expresses a heart back to God of confession and just total openness and say, God, I have blown it. I'm here to be washed clean. I'm contrite. I'm humble. I'm drawing near to you. I'm not hiding from you anymore. I'm not blaming anyone else anymore. I'm just here before you. That's what David does in Psalm 51. And listen to what he prays. In verse 12, he says this. Catch this. Return to me the joy of my salvation. He connects joy to salvation. And it's your salvation. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and make me willing to obey you. I like the New Living Translation, how it translates that. Give me a willing spirit is how another translation says. So catch this. The joy that we're talking about is tied to God's salvation and walking in obedience. That's what David said. Because it's tied to God's salvation, you truly can't help yourself in experiencing it. Joy comes from God. And joy comes from continuing to walk in God's ways. Is salvation a one-time event or an ongoing event? The answer is yes. That's exactly right. Justification, we're made right in an instant. We're brought from death to life. We're born when we were dead. But every single day that stretches out before us, there's an ongoing rescue that's needed. There's an ongoing salvation. There's a continuing And we find our joy by continuing to walk in the way of God. You pair salvation with obedience, and you will discover joy. Not only where it starts, but how it continues. I just finished a book this last year uh, by the late Timothy Keller, a wonderful pastor and author who's just mentored me in a lot of ways through his books called Walking with God Through Pain and Suffering. I highly recommend it. I own a copy in my office. If you'd like it, you're welcome to borrow it from me. Listen carefully. He says this. We go to lengths to put ourselves in front of beautiful places, to surround ourselves with beautiful music, or to hang out with beautiful people. But these will leave us empty if we don't learn to see all of these things as mere tributaries, that's like streams, and God himself as the fountain, the headwaters of it all. So think about how much time and effort is put in by people that you know and probably yourself. You're tempted to to do this, to put yourself in beautiful places. Anyone travel somewhere really cool last year? All right, three of us. Good. I got to go somewhere, sort of. Like, I I got this one, which is like, ah, 
it was sort of nice. Um, man, my wife and I got to go do a trip this last year that was really spectacular, and, and it was just a, this gift from God. We got home, and remember, we, we said to one, I, th- I think she said it to me, she said, boy, if we put all of our stock into this trip, how disappointed would we be right now? We got to enjoy it for what it was. It was this unbelievable gift, this great trip. But it wasn't where our hope was. It wasn't where our deep, lasting joy was. So people put themselves in front of beautiful places, uh, beautiful experiences, and beautiful people. But if we don't learn to see God, we'll miss it all. So you can't help yourself. Here's the second way I mean this. If you're taking notes, jot this one down. You can't help yourself as in for a Christian... Joy just is. It's part of our family culture. Write this down. Joy bubbles up and springs forth from us. I have been blessed a lot lately. One of the things I'm super gifted in, it might be one of my spiritual gifts, I can sneeze like nobody's business. I can string together a good 15 or 20 sneezes at a time, and something in allergies or something went on recently, and I have a daughter, Everly, sitting here in the third row, and Everly always blesses me after a sneeze. And she is really good at it. She's committed to her craft. After like seven sneezes, I have a daughter who's taken this up as well. Tegan's a very good sneezer, not nearly as good as me yet. But honestly, after three or four blesses, I say, be quiet, stop it, knock it off. I just tell her to stop sneezing. I, I don't keep blessing her. Everly keeps blessing me from wherever she is in the house. Bless you. Bless you. Bless. So I'm, I'm overly blessed. This last week, for whatever reason, I had some, some sneezing going on. And joy is kind of like a sneeze. If I tell Tegan to stop, I'm joking. I know she can't help it. You ever try to hold back a sneeze? It gets kind of weird and ugly. It's like ugly crying. It's like, <laughs> like you can't, you know, it actually, it has to escape somewhere. So you just got to sneeze it out, right? And there's a certain sense of joy where for a Christian, you can't help yourself. I love how Jim Burns talked about this radio interview. He said, she just, from the moment she entered the room, Johnny radiated joy. Like it just exuded from her. She couldn't help but be joyful. Cling to this idea, this, this idea and cling to this identity. I have reason to be joyful today. Always. You know, you can pray and ask for this. God, make me joyful. Produce this in me. I know that joy is something that, in a certain sense, I can't help myself. Joy is inevitable. More than Thanos, joy is inevitable for all of us. We're going to sanctify to some point where we just go, why wasn't I more joyful? I was told to rejoice in the Lord always. But how many times did I? Did I walk in that? Lord, grow us in joy this year. Joy starts from verse 3 of this letter, and it runs all the way through to the end. Flip over your Bibles to uh, Philippians 4.4. This is sort of the the crescendo of joy that he gets to. In Philippians 4.4, he just gets to this. And we're going to go all through the book seeing these. But he says, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. Why does he say it twice? Because he almost can't help himself. It's just like, just, just double emphatic. Rejoice always. I wasn't making a mistake. I'm not speaking in hyperbole. I'll say it again. Rejoice. 
So Paul is not only joyful, but calling all Christians everywhere always to be joyful. One more thing before we move on from Philippians, and that's this. It's really remarkable to get an understanding of where Paul's life circumstances were at when he wrote this letter to the church. Let me tell you three things that we know of. One is that he's with his dearest friend and companion, Timothy. Isn't it good to have people around you? Whether things are going really, really well or really terrible or just kind of in the middle, boring, apathy, whatever, just another day, it's good to have people with you. Look around you just for a second. Just look at people awkwardly. You don't need to make it awkward, actually. Just look at them. Smile at them. Yeah. You know what? This is good. This is really, really good. I'm here to tell you I am so grateful that I have a place this morning to come and worship with God's people and with people that I care deeply for, I know care deeply for me. Many of you in this room have walked with one another for years and years and years. And if you walk that long, there's a lot of mountain peaks and there's a lot of trenches that you've gone through. And here we are today singing with one voice, Bibles open, submitting to the Lord, worshiping together. It's good to have people with you. Here's the second thing with Paul. He's seen God work through his life. It's really powerful when you see God using you and your gifts and your personality and your experience to change lives for the gospel. Paul is seeing this. It's very clearly evident to him that God is working through him. Now track with me for a second. Would it be easy to write a letter about joy if you have people near you that are dearly trusted and beloved and have been through times with you? Yes. Is it easy to write about joy when you see God working through your life to bless other people and lead them to Christ and grow them in their faith? Yes. But here's the third thing. Paul is writing this from where? A prison cell. This is the remarkable thing about Philippians. He's writing it from a a prison cell, not just a prison cell. He's writing it from a prison cell where he is awaiting a decision from someone who's wicked and hates Christ on his life as to whether he lives or dies. What is his crime? Quite simply, being a real Christian. I say being a real Christian because that means that he's outspoken about it. He lives a different lifestyle that's contrary to what the entire world is walking after. So he looks insane. He looks hateful and bigoted and not with the program. That's his crime. So if all we could see of Paul's life is that, well, yeah, but he wrote it when he had some good company around and God was moving and he was on some mountaintop. We can't say that about Philippians. Of all the leading figures in all of church history, Paul may have had the most reason of anyone that we know of to be depressed, morose, downcast, and yet we find just the opposite in Philippians. So as we go through this letter, as you prep and as you study, as you come week after week and look at this, remember this. There is joy that is invincible there's joy that can remain completely unaffected by the bad news you will receive this week 
There's joy available to you that will never, ever, ever run out. And if you forget, just schedule a flight to Sydney and back. Just go there, walk across the Sydney Bridge, and fly home. And go, oh yeah, that's a lot of joy. It'd be cheaper to just read the Bible and trust it. Um, here's my question for you. Remember the toddler who's experiencing the ocean a certain way? There's a certain happiness that's just there for everyone. What if, from where you are right now, from where you are living, from where you're experiencing life, sort of just beyond eyesight or your ability to perceive it, there is joy waiting for you. Deep and sustaining and abundant joy. The kind of joy you can just get lost in The kind of joy you can be immersed in that would swallow up every sorrow and hold every happiness. Church, this little letter that we've all, many of us, have read so many times as sort of just this, there's there's an expectation I hope you have for it. I think in our somber times, God wants to infuse your life, God wants to infuse this church with this deep sense of joy of expectancy of what's to come. Next week, we're going to launch in even more. But for now, I want you to consider how to sort of cooperate with what we're doing here on Sunday mornings. I want you to know this morning, I start 2024 very, very encouraged to be one of your pastors. Just in the last couple of weeks, one of the members of our church checked in because he had missed last, the last sermon from our orientation series, and he didn't know what the memory verse was. And I happen to know from previous conversation, he's been working on them and, and, and doing all that. So just text him, here's the verse. That's super encouraging. I had someone check in and say, um, hey, in preparation for Philippians, you mentioned we're doing Philippians. I just want you to know, we're trying to read Philippians every day. Just sort of in preparation for that. It's only four chapters. It's not long. By the way, that's one of the very best ways to prep. If you're ever preaching a sermon series through a book of the Bible, just read the book over and over and over and over again. And then mull on it and think on it. Finally, I received a Christmas card. Uh, Our family did. And on the back, it was just so powerful because there's no shame on anyone who didn't mention their church in their Christmas card. But in this particular Christmas card, it was so evident how the body life of the church was so integral to the family life of this family that had sent us this card. And there are members here at Neighborhood Bible Church, and I just, I think that's the normal pattern and pathway for Christians is that church isn't a Sunday thing, just sort of a, a side throwaway thing we think about once a week, but an integral part of things. There's one more huge way you can cooperate with what your church is trying to help you to form Christ in you as we preach through this sermon, and that's to remain in or join a midweek community group. We have a little tradition around here of following the school year with our community groups. That means early fall we tend to start community groups, and we end them right around late spring, early summer when school is getting out. So January, we've always had what we call a mini on-ramp. So there's sometimes in the fall, it was just a hard time or a bad time, or you couldn't make it to a group, or you weren't ready to commit, or whatever. And we don't want you to wait all the way until next fall. 
So in January, we sort of carve out time and, and give a little bit of sermon time to just call people to community. And each year we have a little theme uh, that, that we do. And this one came right from our learning in our study in the book of Acts. So this year's theme for community groups is the idea of devoted. Let me show you two quick devotings going on in the book of Acts. Number one is early on where it says in Acts chapter 2, and they, the church, devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and the prayers. And then in Acts 6, 4, it says the leader said this, we will devote ourselves to prayer and ministry of the word. Do you see the two devotings going on? The church took responsibility to devote themselves to some very specific things. And these church leaders were really responsible to devote themselves to narrow everything they could do to say the most important things for us to devote ourselves to is prayer and ministry of the word. So we decided to sort of take this devoted theme and run with it a little bit because we saw a path for us to follow here at this church. Let me walk through these very quickly. On the screen, what we see is they devoted to learning. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, not just growing, but to learning. To say that you need to learn something is a humble stance. It means I don't have everything I already need. I need to sit and receive. I need to be humble and learn something. That's what we see them doing. Our simplest definition, if you were to come and want to start a neighborhood Bible church community group, we would ask you a few questions. We would talk through some things, but we've boiled down a community group to three words. Fellowship around the word. That's four words. Fellowship around math on the fly. It helps, kids. Keep in school. Fellowship around the word. Here's what that means. Some groups can devolve into just fellowship. And you don't know if they're just a secular, like just disc golf club or, you know, a root beer tasting club or whatever it might be. They're just, they just fellowship. And then some people like just get into Bible studies and they're just, it's all about the word. And it's like, they don't have a clue what the other person's name is in that study. Both of those are fine for what they are. But for us as a community group, we say we want to fellowship around the word. So it's, at its root, as sort of simplest thing, that's what we're thinking about. We do this because Christians are people of the book. They devote themselves to a second thing, the apostles' teaching and the fellowship. That means specific people. Actual real people. This is where our, our tagline comes in, that we're choosing real over ideal. Relationships suffer when people love love, the idea, instead of loving actual people. You know what I'm talking about. Churches suffer when people are committed to the ideal of church or community rather than to the real the actual, like what's actually sitting here in front of you. We have these fingerprints on our screen, and it's to remind us that no two people are alike. It also reminds us that only real people have actual fingerprints. So we're not meeting with an ideal group of people in our head, but actual people who stumble and fall. With community, it's easier to dream about it, read about it, post about it, tweet about it, than to actually devote yourselves to it. So church, Christian, I'm calling you, devote yourself to the fellowship. 
We're going to get to this in Philippians 4. But Philippians 4, 9, Paul writes this. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things. I love this song. Just kidding. Um, let me say it one more time. We've got to get this. 4-9. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things. Here's what he's saying. We learn best by modeling, by just having someone there showing us the Christian life. I can't tell you how thankful I am uh, for having people in my life who have done that. It goes on. The teaching, the fellowship, the breaking of bread. This is both regular times of eating together and regular times of communion. It's not just the Lord's Supper. It's just supper. It's just dinner time. In a word, we sort of packed it into this idea of being devoted to sharing. There's maybe no more clear time around our family table when it's very clear we're not a restaurant, the parents sort of working for the kids or someone enslaved to the parents, but we all participate in the purchasing of food, the carrying in of food, the prepping of food, the cooking of food, the setting of the table, the eating of the food, the cleaning up and clearing of the food. We all participate in the family meal. The word share is really, really big around this church. And we are devoting ourselves to sharing and being together. One of the things we came up with around Father's Day this year was um, to give all of the dads in the church a coupon book. So if you don't have your dad coupon book, then come and see me. I will get it for you. Um, But the dad coupon book is the gift that keeps on giving. Each month is a new coupon for dad to turn in. And Jesus said it's better to give than to receive. If you want to find your life, give it away. So some of our coupons have been for, for instance, a book, Family Discipleship by Matt Chenow. That's yours free if you turn in the coupon. But some of them are calling you as a dad to lead your family in giving. So here's, here's this month's coupon. <clears throat> Took a picture of it this morning. From Romans 15:2, let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up. Dad, here's the coupon. A family share day. January, new year, new opportunities to dream of ways to share the blessing. Redeem this coupon to serve someone outside your home or church family. Get creative. So, Dad, if you need some ideas on how to do this, man, there's some families and individuals that do this on a regular basis already. Lots to learn from. Finally, it says this, and they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, the fellowship, the breaking of the bread, and to prayers. On this wall, as we walk outside of the church, uh, I want you to take a look at all of the community groups that we have in English and Spanish that happen all throughout the week in many, many different locations. And community group leaders hear me clearly. Community group participants hear me clearly. These are prayer meetings. These are prayer meetings that, we, that meet all through the week in two different languages on many different locations. And I say this as a, um, as a leader who needs to grow in this. I want to grow our church in being devoted to prayer. Didn't we see over and over and over in Acts, they were gathered together in prayer? This church, Philippi, was born of a prayer meeting that Lydia was a part of. There weren't even ten men to form a synagogue. There were women by a a river praying. And this church was born out of that. So we're going to be devoted to the prayers. 
Let me invite the band to come on up. We're going to wrap up with a couple of songs. And as we do, I just want to invite you to close your eyes for just a minute. And just invite the Lord to inspect your heart, your mind, kind of where you're at right now as you start this year. So thankful you're here. God, we're grateful that you brought us here together. Any sense of us seeking you or trusting that there's joy beyond sort of the shore that that we know and can touch and feel secure in is a calling from you. God, our flesh isn't helpful in calling us to faith. It's a work of your spirit that's doing that. God, I'm doubly joyful this morning just seeing faces here. God, I'm so thankful the Burlsons are here. God, I pray that they would think back on us in every remembrance with joy as a church that loves them as in their corner. God, that as we give and as we pray and as we hear updates and receive them back on furloughs, God, that we'd recognize that our joy is tied to theirs and the ministry going on halfway around the world. God, thank you for gifting us salvation that can never, ever, ever be threatened by us or our circumstances. You can't undie and unget off the cross. God, you've done that and you've been resurrected and we cling to that. And our joy is intimately tied to thinking on that. Thank you for corporate worship. God, that's designed to remind us of these things. That's right. I have joy that's invincible right now. God, there are reports of happiness in this room that are spectacular. And God, I personally know of many, many hurts that people have carried into this room with them. God, we lay all of that at your loving feet. We say, come and have your way. God, fill us with your deep and abiding joy. Teach us how to rejoice always. Amen.